So, these uh, two different scriptures that Hugh read to us earlier. Um, at first glance, you might think that they not, do not seem to have much in common. Uh, but I think that in a certain sense, they do. Um, so, the scripture from Acts. You have this description of the early church. Uh, not a church building. They didn't have a church building yet. But the, the people, the body of Christ. They are devoted to learning the ways of God. To the apostles' teaching. Uh, they are devoted to one another. To fellowship, we might say. They are devoted to worship to the breaking of bread, communion. Uh, they are no longer in the bondage of busyness or distraction by the world. They make time for God and for each other. They're not in bondage to materialism anymore, but are set free from the icy grip of more and more possessions, more and more stuff. They are generous beyond imagination. They gave to everyone in need. The things of this world were no longer to be accumulated, but shared. The power of God was upon them. Prayers were being answered. The sick were healed. The poor and the widows were being taken care of. They are not polarized, but united in Christ. They are not angry, argumentative, divisive, judgmental. Instead, they, quote, ate together with glad and generous hearts. What a church, right? No wonder people were attracted to this group of people. No wonder the Lord was able to add to their number daily those who were being saved. And then we have this other somewhat somber description, uh, scripture in Luke where Jesus is warning his followers to, quote, be ready. Be dressed, ready for action. Because you don't know when the master will come. You don't know when you will need to be absolutely dressed and ready for action. But we might think, ready for what? Uh, is this simply an apocalyptic scripture, or is there more to it than that? Well, all of this uh, scripture is in the context of Jesus spending about two chapters warning his closest followers about how the world will push back on them for following him. That when you start loving everyone, even those who are wrong, sinful, on the other side, when you start forgiving everything, even those things that do not deserve forgiveness, when you give up on the way of the world, which is always us versus them, and start to live the way of the kingdom of grace and peace for everyone, then guess what? There will be people who don't like it, especially your religious friends especially even your own family. So, be dressed, ready. But again, for what exactly, besides just the cemetery or the end of the world? I think Jesus has something contemporary in mind for them as he's speaking to them. So, this is going to seem like a, a big switch in gears. Uh, but this being Communion Sunday, uh, I got to thinking that um, maybe understanding the sacrament of communion on a deeper level might help us with this question to guide us in how to be ready for service for Jesus. So uh, humor me, stay with me. Uh, 
We talked about not making this hokey, but somehow it did come out that way. Okay, so here we go. Come on. This is Okay, so our first and only category that we're going to talk about is the sacrament of Holy Communion, okay? And we rehearsed this morning, and it was a disaster. Uh, I invited the 9 o'clock group to just come back at 11.10, okay? Um, so what, these are rhetorical questions, unless you want to be like the kids at the early service and shout it out anyhow. Um, what is a sacrament? Well, here's, here's the, uh, the textbook dictionary definition. A Christian rite, such as baptism or communion, that is believed to have been instituted by Christ or ordained by Christ, and that is held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. Now, that's a mouthful. So just focused on ordained by Christ, a spiritual reality, and a means of grace. And I'll come back to some of that in a minute. Okay, second question, why are only the clergy authorized to consecrate the elements? Okay, the answer is to protect the integrity of the sacrament. When I was going to seminary, uh, Reverend Jim Mayfield uh, was teaching us a class, and he graduated from seminary back in the early 60s and and he said you wouldn't believe some of the really weird things that people wanted to do with the sacrament of communion back in the 60s <laughs> yeah yeah don't don't yeah don't give baby boomers the steering wheel of the church right <laughs> And so he said, for times like that, that is why we educate the clergy on sacramental theology and tradition and then give the clergy the responsibility for its care. And because we have, it has survived. We pretty much do it the way the original followers of Jesus did it 2,000 years ago. And not just the sacrament itself, but the basic pattern of worship. I would think that if a first century Christian somehow went through a, a portal to this very morning, morning, I would think he or she would basically recognize what we are doing. We gather together, we sing, we proclaim the word, we respond with thanksgiving and prayers, we take up a collection for the poor, we break the bread, we send forth. That's how they did it in the first century. It's how we do it now. Um, sidebar, however... Um, they would be confused by the pipe organ, okay? They, they had drums and guitars in the first century, but not a pipe organ. I had to get that in, okay? Went over a lot better in the first service. Okay. So, next question. Why do Methodists use grape juice instead of real wine? Okay, the answer is out of love for those who struggle for alcohol with alcohol addiction. Now, this tradition started in America 
in the 19th century when alcoholism was a horrible problem and there were no 12-step groups, uh, medications, there really wasn't a very clear understanding of how that worked biologically or medically. It was just dealt with morally and a lot of condemnation, a lot of judgment. And yes, even a tiny amount of alcohol can trigger problems for those who struggle with it. And so, again, out of love, compassion, and care, we do this. Love one another, Jesus says. And in our tradition, it just worked out to look like this. So, you don't want to judge anybody else, but you don't need to apologize to your Catholic and Episcopalian friends. You just say, look, we try to love everybody, and that's just how it worked out for us. So, bonus question. <laughs> I checked my email between services to see if I was getting any hate mail over there. Okay, so the bonus question, who invented pasteurized unfermented grape juice? Okay, Thomas B. Welch, a Methodist pastor in New Jersey. In 1869, he perfected a juice pasteurization process in his kitchen because grape juice left alone will always ferment, okay? He began selling Dr. Welch's unfermented wine to churches preferring an alcohol-free substitute to, for communion. And, of course, what's it called now? Welch's, grape juice, right? So don't buy any non-Methodist brands. Buy <laughs> Welch's grape juice, okay? Next question. What are the different common names for the sacrament. Uh, Eucharist, which is a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. Uh, Holy communion. We, uh, we fellowship, we communion, we commune with one another. And the Lord's Supper. And when I was a kid, I did not understand that phrase. To me, it was not supper. It was hardly even a decent snack, right? <laughs> so think of... Supper is a verb, not a noun, okay? We supper together. Jesus suppers with us, and we get to supper with him. And that's important. Uh, it's very important. In the Gospels, the religious people uh, are always upset, not that Jesus would preach to everybody, but that he seems to eat with everybody. That's their criticisms. Why are you eating with them? Huh? So why is that a problem? Well, what if, for example, a very liberal Democrat and a very conservative Republican sat down and had lunch together? What would their friends say? Hmm? Why are you associating with one another? Uh, Andy Stanley, who is an evangelical conservative, uh, back during the shutdown, he was asked to, to give an interview on a fairly liberal news outlet and he thought it was a great opportunity to witness in that venue and he had people quit the church because he did that because he associated with the wrong folks right so who does Jesus associate with you and how do you know he eats with you 
He suffers with you. He communes with you. Okay, so next question. Who's allowed to receive communion in the Methodist tradition? Anyone who desires Christ in their lives. Now, John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement back in the 18th century, uh, was actually very radical on this point. Some traditions back then, you couldn't take communion without a ticket. Okay? You were examined, interviewed, and if you were worthy, you got a ticket and you could take communion. Okay, Wesley basically said, you've got it backwards. We take it because we don't deserve it, right? And he, uh, he thought of communion, he called it a saving ordinance, a means of grace, a spiritual reality. His argument was, you never know if someone coming forward who receives the sacrament would experience the presence of Christ and give their lives to Christ in that moment. Why would you deny someone who might actually come to the sacrament holding out their hands, hoping for the presence of Christ? Who would you deny? Some of you have been on walk to Emmaus, right? Some of you have gone through what they call dying moments where something in your life needs to die. Something in your life, it just keeps pulling me down and Jesus take it away from me. I hold out my hands and I receive the bread because that which is killing me had to die instead. And you watch somebody walk away and you can tell life is now different for them. Hmm? So, um, number six, why do we cover the elements with a, a very pretty cloth? Okay, the answer is to keep off the flies. <laughs> like most holy things, there's a practicable beginning. And so for centuries upon centuries, before the invention of air conditioning and climate-controlled buildings, what did you do in the summertime? You open the window, right? Next question. What do we typically do with the leftover elements? Uh, personally, return them to the earth, okay? Usually the leftover elements I take outside to the biblical garden and feed them to the birds and pour out the juice on the ground, which becomes a kind of fertilizer to renew the earth. So, next question. When can lay people serve the elements? And the answer is, after the elements have been consecrated by the clergy. In other words, the bread and the juice have been prayed over by the clergy, and uh, the Holy Spirit has been invited to be a part of it. In other words, laity can be involved as long as those who are ordained and trained supervise. So number nine, why do Methodists typically serve communion only once a month? It's really just a historical habit. Back in the days when you had circuit riders going from church to church, they might only show up at your church once a month, maybe even once after two months. So we could easily do it every Sunday if we wish. Uh, and we do do it every week. We On Thursdays at noon, we have a little prayer service and we take communion every week. So what are the several common understandings of what communion means or symbolizes that spiritual reality 
that I mentioned earlier. Well, first, memorial, okay? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. And so we remember that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose again for us. Jesus loves us, claims us, watches over us. We are not alone. We do not have to be anxious in the way that the world is typically anxious. Do not be afraid, little flock, says Jesus in this same chapter. As a memorial, but also presence. Jesus is not just a story or something that happened long ago. He is with us in the mystery of the breaking of the bread. We also talk about forgiveness. Communion is the sacrament of forgiveness. We are already forgiven. Christ has already died on the cross. Thanks be to God, even though we might not deserve it. A means of grace. Unity. We, We are united in the sacrament. We eat with each other, blue or red, red or left or right. Those who've got it together and those who are broken beyond repair, we're all in this together. And how do we know? Jesus eats with us and we eat with Jesus. Jesus who prays for our unity. Belonging, basically see above unity. Again, we're not alone. We're not on our own. We're not abandoned. We're not unwanted. And humility. We remember the humility of Christ for our behalf, and that becomes the blueprint of how we are to become a means of grace for others. Think about it. What was the nicest, kindest, most sacrificial thing anybody ever did for you? It changed your life, didn't it? Humble sacrifice, humble sacrificial love for others is always more powerful than your excellent argument based on the internet articles you've been reading and you post on Facebook. I'm just saying, okay? So, generosity, right? Generosity changes the world. Greed suffers the world. So, then, how do we get ready for when Jesus needs us most. I think all of the above may be a beginning point on how to come together to open our hands, to remember who we belong to, who is present among us, who has forgiven us, who unites us, who calls us to belong to one another in humility and generosity. Now, I've been working on this sermon this week, and I I felt like there was a a sermon illustration at the end that I couldn't find. And actually, believe it or not, this morning, I would urge you to either go online or find a copy of the San Antonio Express News. And they have a front-page banner article about a group that's doing vacation Bible school in Uvalde for those elementary kids that were all there. A couple of the kids, it says, were actually wounded. And all of them knew somebody who died. The headline is, A Little Light Still Shines. Children Find Hope Among Faith, Fellowship During Camp. And I've read so many articles searching for who to blame. Who's at fault? And here's an article that says, well, let's see what it says. It was organized by a Catholic nun 
who grew up in Uvalde, and she brought in nuns from her order all over the country and other volunteers. And I put it on in a public building so it would be ecumenical and not just a Catholic event. And they printed this prayer in the prayer, it is in the paper. Here's the prayer that they are teaching the kids. We remember in a special way our friends who were killed. We remember those who were hurt. We ask you to bring healing to our hearts, to our families, to our friends, and to our town. Help us, Jesus, to know that you are always with us. And we turn to you when we are scared, when we are frightened, and when we are hurting. Help us to know that our parents and our teachers and other friends are here to help us through all these times. Amen. And then they sang, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm not defeated. We are not destroyed. I still have a light, and I'm going to let it shine. And how did we know to teach that to them? Is this just wishful thinking? How would you know for sure that that's true? Well, among other things, the sacrament. These nuns have been receiving the sacrament all their lives. And on that unexpected, unimaginable day, they were dressed and ready for action. As is the whole body of Christ, we pray. Ready for action. No wonder after 2,000 years, the sacrament is still the center of who we are and what we believe and what we hope to be.